Were you going to say yeah. I have something on my forehead? You, you got something on your forehead. Are like, you? Oh, yeah, yeah perfect. Yeah. Yep, right uh-huh. on brand, isn't it? <laughs> you guys, I mean, we say actually, happy. Uh, it's kind of Solemn strange. Ash Wednesday to you. I know. Yeah, well, um, you know, we're we're all about the symbolism and the smells and bells on like you uh, yeah, Eastern it's folks. Yeah, something so. we lack in the East. I know, it's totally true. Uh, I wonder, I'm going to have to look up why we don't do Ash Wednesday. Like we don't have the tradition of doing the ashes on our forehead. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I think it's kind of neat. I, I mean, you guys, you're, you're Ash probably symbol. just afraid to confront your own death. I'm guessing it's <laughs> probably what it is, is, you know. Welcome to the Voyage Podcast, a show that traverses the oceans of myth and legend through the lens of Catholic theology and philosophy. Come aboard as we set sail in pursuit of the heroic life and Christian virtue with your hosts, Mike Schramm and Jacob Platty. Hey everyone, welcome to this uh, part two episode of the Voyage Podcast where Jacob and I are going to be hopefully wrapping up, right Jacob, wrapping up our conversation <laughs> on... Uh, so, and, yeah, and we'll we see talk if a I lot can about, do a better job this time than I did last time of, of getting through this movie. Um. Not that it, by any means will it not be our last like Studio Ghibli episode, but um, it'll at least be this sort of opening episode where we we talked about spirit and spirit spirited away uh, on part one, and we wanted to kind of tie it into the new Studio Ghibli movie, The Boy and the Heron, and so that'll be kind of. Uh, what most of part two is going to be talking about since we really didn't talk about boy and the heron in part one at all, unless you were kind of referring to it as part of like general studio Ghibli comments, right, Jacob? Yeah, that's true. Um, and you know, that became kind of obvious as I was preparing the outline. Um, it became this like behemoth (laughs) kind of document because there's just so much, uh, to mine in these movies that even before we started last episode, it was like, you know, this is gonna be a two parter. Um, but, uh, I loved these movies enough to rate it, I think. Um, and so we're going to stick to that plan, I suppose. And uh, at least this time, we won't have to cover some of the stuff, like some of the cultural context, because we did spend a good amount of time last time talking about, well, um, you know, Shinto and paganism and how Japan is a fundamentally more pagan culture, uh, just even in its recent history than we are in the West. And so how the flavor of Studio Ghibli films are, they're they're just different. It's a different flavor um, than what you'd find. And I compare it with Disney flicks because I think Disney is kind of like the ultimate. That's a um, West versus East thing. Yeah. Yeah. Studio Ghibli is very much to Japan what like Disney is to uh, us you know so i've been told right but i, I definitely get the uh that wasn't an original the... jacob uh, insight <laughs> that that we all pay for that wasn't one of those oh man uh i know like uh honestly if i ever start spouting original stuff i have to turn in my eastern orthodox card i was so, gonna say yeah, yeah that's that's breaking with the tradition yeah. so that's right yeah uh i don't trust myself anyway right Everything I what say you, is I think, plagiarized. I, what you're supposed to say is Western innovations is what you yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once you start spouting Western innovations or modern Western, exactly modernist it. Western innovations. We don't want any of that nonsense. <laughs> like, yeah, like our theology. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> like putting ashes on forehead, right? Oh, wait, no, that I, goes I, to the curious, Old Testament. You know, yeah. That goes to the Old Testament. Oh, okay. All right. Nice save. Nice save. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway. So, All right, yeah, uh, let's try to so, yeah, get, into get into it and see if we have time to talk about this so movie. yeah walk us through the the boy and the heron um, a little bit well, I, and again i know you've done tell. some of these um a uh, little on. bit of the background well you did a little bit of the background in um part one just talking about um you know just a lot of a it bit. is based off of um biographical information um having to do with you know flying and planes and, and world war ii and displacement and stuff like that but so yeah sort of just drop us airdrop us into that if you will uh, um, no pun intended um but uh so you haven't seen this movie, unfortunately, and I'll, I'll let Mike get away with this, folks, because he because it had just cool come enough. out. Yeah, it had yeah. just come out, and some of us, you know, aren't going to the theater all the time. Aren't right? able to get to the theater all the time. You know, their their priorities are askew, right? Um, but uh, so what? That's okay though. We're basically this is going to be one of those episodes where I know everything about it, and Mike just kind of 
nods along. So a nice little inversion. Of... It's nice to have those once in a while. Right? <laughs> have those every once in a while where Jacob knows what he's doing. Yeah, well, you know, I got to pay my dues sometime. Um, all right. So, yeah, uh, this movie opens uh, in dramatic fashion with uh, Tokyo being bombed by fire. Right. Um, and uh, we witness the death of the main character, Mahito's mother. And then we flash forward to him being uh, brought out to the country, which has definite vibes with like the Pevensey kids coming out mm-hmm. to the countryside with the London bombings. Um, yeah, that is an interesting parallel. It's just immediately where my head the, goes. Yeah. Well, and what's funny is, yeah, they're the good guys and they're go- getting away from the bad guys. But in this case, you know, who's the good, <laughs> the bad, and the, who's, who are the good Whoa. guys and the bad guys, right? Yeah, really. Man, I guess it's head. all relative, eh, Mike? Uh, <laughs> some more Western it's just innovation. A, just a difference in perspective. We'll say. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's, it's a it's a really interesting um, kind of parallelism there. But uh, he's being brought out, but he's also being introduced to his new stepmother, which happens to be his aunt, because his dad has We're getting gone into fairy and, tale. We're going down. Well, it's no, dude. This is not road. even fairy tale. This is just good old fashioned history. Because frankly, all cultures used to do this. Uh, you know, the Old Testament has this. Um, this is in the Torah. Uh, it's where the the father, the husband, uh, or how how would this go? If a woman, if the husband dies, then the woman Brother's is wife. given to the brother right yeah stuff like that and it has to do with being able to take care of the family it also has to do with like bearing the family line um in older cultures ancient cultures where you know keeping the family bloodline uh pure super important and things like that and because Mm -hmm. we're talking about japan being basically an ancient styled pagan nation up until uh, you know, World War II is like the transition phase, a part of the transition phase, part of the era of history in which Japan is modernizing, uh, kind of the tail end of it. But hey, you know, societies don't modernize overnight. And mm-hmm. what we have in uh, The Boy and the Heron is just a historical styled example of um, a father taking the sister in order to keep the family intact, basically. Um, and everyone's like this is normal this isn't this isn't weird it's it's definitely strange for us to look at in the 21st century america right mm. um but uh that being said mojito the main character kid is definitely not super cool with it he is still mourning the loss of his mother um she mm. is uh, her name is natsuko and she is pregnant so he's gonna have a baby brother cousin <laughs> so it's the classic but it's also like the competing for the new you know attention yeah second sort of family too, kind so of stuff you know yeah and you know he's just he's very stoic about it he's uh uh and he is is exemplifying the kind of submissive culture of you know being his father and things like that but he's really not happy about this and he's brought out to a country estate that uh, again from a western perspective it reminds me of like a nunnery or something like that and Hmm. i admit i haven't really looked up exactly what we're looking at here i don't know if it's just like the father's like country estate and they just has a bunch of old ladies serving there like servants or if they're displaced or if they're um I actually don't even know why there's a bunch of old women there, but there is. And it Mm. looks like a nunnery, basically. It looks like a convent. Um, There is definitely a big Shinto shrine there and things like that. Um, And there is a pond on the estate, along with a very strange tower that's hanging out over there. And they tell him that he can't go next to that tower or anything like that. There's also in the pond this giant blue heron. Okay. Um, and this heron is immediately aggressive with him and starts to kind of like swoop at him a little bit and things like that. And the people on the estate are like, that's very strange that this is happening or whatever. Um, and he spends, the film takes a good time, uh, amount of time just like watching this kid hang out in his new environment. Uh, he doesn't get along with the kids at school. Um, in fact, he gets into a fight on his first day and on his way home in an act of like, just like impotent aggression, he picks up a stone and he bashes himself in the head with it. 
and blood mm. splurts out. It's like a very like violent moment in an yeah. otherwise really, really serene because it's all like super beautiful nature countryside stuff. Right. Mm. Um, but, you know, so the rest of the film, he actually has a scar on his head from where he gashes himself with a stone. Um, and that's obviously becomes pretty symbolic for themes that go on in this movie as it continues. Yeah. Um, he uh, gets home. He decides he's going to kill that heron. Uh, meanwhile, that heron has started to talk to him <laughs> and be like, mm-hmm. hey, I can take you to your dead mom. You should follow me kind of thing. So already strange things are happening. Um, the frogs come back. Like he goes down to uh, try to shoot the heron. He like learns how to like make a bone arrow and he goes down to mm-hmm. try to shoot the heron. And um, all of a sudden all the wildlife in the pond like rises to the surface and is like, come with us, come with us or something. They start chanting at him um, yeah, and mean- all these frogs. <clears throat> well, let me just, well, all got- these frogs come out and like they, they, they cover him from head to foot. He gets like covered in frogs kind of thing well and you mentioned this in spirit the spirited away discussion where the frog is is a common symbol right uh, because mm-hmm. of its because of the 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 word for it it's a pun it and, is yeah it's the same word as return like the same vocalization as the word return and so evidently i'm actually not a super expert on this but what i learned when i was just kind of looking into this stuff is that it becomes a pun in japanese culture for basically seems to me like a liminal space which also mm. makes sense because they're amphibious, right? Um, yeah, I, frogs so are. I might be reading they live this in into earth it. and water. Right. But it's hard for me not to read the obvious liminal symbolism into that. But basically the idea is either a kind of like uh, portent, like, hey, turn back now if you dare. Or it's more of a, it can either be that or it seems like it can also be kind of like a karmic thing. Where well, it's like, and the, it'll the liminal space thing is is fitting right because it's it's him sort of reconciling um the the death of his mother but also a sort of return back to normalcy because they had to have this big move because everything he had known was taken away not just his source of security and mom but then his home as well um and so he's in this sort of new space that he kind of has to move to which again this does fit well with spirited away where the girl is going through this sort of like growing up right leaving childhood behind and who does she encounter, you know, when she goes to this kind of fairy world is all of these different frogs, right? The, the, like these yep, um, yep. anthropomorphic frogs. And so it is, I mean, we, we can see how it sort of fits in both of these sort of places. Well, and one of the things that we talked about last, last episode is that if Spirited Away is kind of like a Japanese fairy tale and presents the world of the kami, the, the gods, spirits, angels, all of the above, they all fall under the umbrella term of kami, ancestor spirits, any, any type of spiritual force, nature spirits, it's all kami. It's all just flattened into one concept, which uh, I don't think is actually all that different from the understanding of spirit in the West either when you really dig into it. Mm. But um, we tend to, you know, have different categories for things. Um, but... Uh, the it presents the world of the kami as like the land of fairy kind of in spirited away whereas what the boy and the heron is going to do is also going to be an underworld tale but it's going to present the world of the kami as uh eternity as the Mm. afterlife we're going to get much more which is why these two films are a perfect back-to-back double feature um, because you have very similar themes of um, personal growth and going on a journey into um, the supernatural and coming back out grown up and things like that. Uh, so classic hero's journey type stuff. Um, but it also, it focuses on two sides of this coin. Whereas like some tales, it's more of like a fairy tale and some tales it's more of a metaphysical kind of reality. And so the boy well, and the heron is the metaphysical side. And actually, you know, too, I, I made the comment about, oh, we're getting into fairy tale language because you mentioned the stepmother. And you're like, no, this is just like straight, like, you know, this is, um, many have considered this to be his most biographical uh, movie of the ones. Mm-hmm. And so, but it does sort of toe that line between, you know, reality and symbolism, right? Which again, you and I would both recognize that line is not as thick as most people might assume it is, right? That it's a, a much thinner veil between you know, quote unquote, the sensible world or the material world and the world of, you know, fantasy or ideas or fairy. And so this is where we get a good example of that, where we have 
you know, this person is going through in many ways, a very real life situation, or it was a real life situation for so many. Um, but is also kind of having these equally real fantastical experiences. Actually, as you were kind of setting this up and you're like, oh, well, you have this pond, but then you have the tall tower and it's like, oh, it's kind of like a guard, a knowledge, a tree of knowledge of good and evil sort of scenario. Right. Mm. And the heron is sort of tempting him. Right. And you actually even true. say, and you say the heron is like, this is just from your outline that, that the heron is a trickster figure. And if you remember from our trickster episode, right, we talk about how the trickster is, um, you know, that catalyst for change, the one who sort of causes the, um, who, who causes the disruption in the story and how I, I was kind of, or we were talking about how it's not supposed to be a moral or, or immoral. It's an amoral figure. Now, obviously the change that can be brought about can be for the worse, but God, you know, God becomes this master trickster where he brings the long about change ultimately for the good. But mm-hmm. the serpent in the garden is the trickster figure in that mythology, in that myth, in the myth of the garden of Eden Again, not saying it didn't really happen, not saying Genesis isn't real, blah, blah, blah. We've already gone through all this, you know, all these disclaimers. Sure. The serpent is the trickster figure. And it seems like you have a very similar situation with the with the heron. Well, no, it's actually such a good point you bring up um, because he is a um, malevolent, right? Uh, uh-huh. And part of the story is going to be the reconciliation that happens between him and Mahito, the main character boy. But he is also used by another character called the great granduncle, um, who actually says, hey, take this boy um, into the afterlife, basically. Uh, and so he, he pairs them together. Uh, we're almost there in the actual script, so I guess I'll just like keep flowing the script so we can get yeah, to that yeah, point. It's, it's... But you've anticipated some really, really interesting things about that are super accurate, uh, from what I can tell. Just being able to read that into the story from other symbolism type things that we've talked about in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, is told like you know, so all these, all the creatures, all the frogs, and all that they they come up and and you know swallow them up basically. Uh, and he passes out and he, you know, it starts to get pretty dreamy. Right. And he has this dream that he like sinks underwater kind of stuff. And when he wakes up, he's in bed and, uh, his, his stepmom is sick from the baby. Right. Like she, and everyone in the family's like, oh, she's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. But frankly, I think the story doesn't, doesn't make that case. I think that the the kind of the nannies or whatever are are just trying to assuage him that things are gonna be okay. But she's dying um, mm. from complications related to her childbirth, and so he um, eventually ends up witnessing her walking towards this tower on the edge of the property, very s- surreally. Like suddenly she is walking into the woods to this tower that's like you're not supposed to go there. Um, he tried to go there once already chasing the heron and mm. the nanny people like brought him back saying, no, this is a dangerous place. This is, uh, you know, you can get hurt out here. So you're not allowed over here kind of thing. But then he witnesses his stepmom walk to this tower. And when he gets there, there's a doorway that wasn't there before. It's got a line from the divine comedy. Um, that's a reference mm. to the gates of hell. Uh, it, that's I am made of divine power. And mm-hmm. I think that line comes um, right before, you know, abandon all hope, yeah. ye who enter here. Um, so it's part of the, it's part of the prologue to the gate of hell kind of thing. So yeah. Miyazaki, the director seems to be borrowing that line, but really putting a pretty obvious, Hey, he doesn't, he doesn't focus on the uh, more Western popular line of abandon all hope. Ye who enter here instead. He's basic. He, yeah. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he focuses instead on the fi- idea that this uh, gate to hell is, you know, made of divine power kind of thing. That's a really, that strikes me as a very Eastern thing to do. Because they don't have the same kind of value system that Western Christianity, you know, Christianity in general has brought into the West. Um, and so, you know, the underworld isn't, you know, it's it's basically just like a, a realm of exploration. You know what I mean? Or a place mm. where the gods live. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not hell it's sort of per an, se. It's an amoral um, description. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, but this movie, this is what's funny to me, is it seems like some of the earliest reviews that I read of this movie um, didn't seem to understand that it was an underworld story. That they talk about it as like a fan. They're looking at this more like an Alice in Wonderland type story, like we talked mm-hmm. about in the past. I think that Spirited Away can easily be called an Alice in Wonderland type story. I also think yeah. that it was easier for people just kind kind of like go along with it. Well, superficially, it, you've got the young girl. Yeah, it's the growing. Superficially, up. it's it's, the, it's easier to follow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas the boy and the heron. You got a lot more from some of the early reviews that I read of just like, I don't really know what happens, but I know that it felt, it felt big, right? So mm-hmm. they were talking about it more like, you know, it's poetic and like, it doesn't necessarily have to make sense. And it's more, this is Miyazaki in his old age, his final film. And, and he's creating like a, a truly artful masterpiece that relies more upon, um, the emotional logic of it than the rational logic of it, stuff like Mm. that. Right. Um, And I think it's because they, they just weren't picking up on some of this textual stuff that seemed really obvious to me. And I'm not saying that because I'm all snooty. Oh, I know what I'm talking about. It's just like the movie really beats you over the head that this is the afterlife. Like repeatedly beats you you over the head. If you felt like you didn't have to work hard to find it, then you almost like second guess, like, well, wait, I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's it's like, because so like when he, he he's just he speaking to right tower. to you that's all yeah I, yeah i guess <laughs> so i guess so he goes to the tower um and he confronts like there the heron's like hey i got your mother she's lying on this couch and he goes and he goes out to touch her and she dissolves into liquid right um and so it's like ah oh, you tricked me because he is a a trickster type character, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, he shoots him with the arrow. It wounds him in the beak and it takes his ability to fly away. Mahito does. Oh, also um, one of the nannies. Um, let's see. Her name was Kariko. She journeys with him. She sees him going. He's like, I got to go after my stepmom. She walked away kind of thing. And so she goes with him into the tower. Uh, mm-hmm. At this point, there is this old man in the sky. So they're inside this tower you look up and there's like a, an observatory type space up there. And there's this old man, gray giant mustache. I don't think he has a beard, but he's a very Eastern version of like your stereotypical Western sky God figure. Right. Okay. Uh, and he's like, you know, take him uh, to find his stepmother. Uh, you know, I assign you to him kind of thing. So he, he is this basically godlike figure in mm-hmm. these scenes. And I mean that from a very Western perspective. Um, I don't think that Miyazaki is presenting him as like God, the father, but I do think that is because the Shinto religion and, and, you know, the religions and the paganism that influences Japanese culture is way more about ancestor worship. It's way more mm-hmm. about how the ancestors control our lives. And so they don't have an approximation of like, um, a personalized God the Father figure. But what they do have is the ancestors and the kami dictating the natural world around us in the lives well, around us. And even going back to the Joseph Campbell hero's journey thing, like there is a step on the hero's journey that's just atonement with the Father. And even though Joseph Campbell is coming from a, you know, like he was a Western person or he was, he did uh, grow up in a cat with a Catholic background. Um, he wasn't imposing that onto the myths that he was investigating. Like he was trying to, you know, come into every myth that he had had and trying to see what's the thread that weaves them all together, not impose a Christian or a Western viewpoint onto all the other myths. So, so it wasn't like when he had that step of atonement with the father, he wasn't thinking, Oh, well this is, you know, Jesus Christ and you know, God, the father, like from the Christian standpoint, this is every myth has something like it. Now, Christians can obviously recognize Jesus and God the Father when they see the mythical or the hero's journey elements in the Gospels, but it's not supposed to be, it's almost like putting a cart before the horse. And so it's not crazy that you would see something very similar, even though this person, um, you know, in Spirited Away or in Boy and the Heron is going to have this Western and this Christian standpoint too. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, and as we'll discover, he is a creator figure, right? So, like, mm-hmm. he, he is the creator of the world. I think this is where people got mixed up on because they're like, how can this this isn't the afterlife because there's this uh, ancestor figure who created the world that Mojito is going to fall into. And our ancestors don't create the, you know, like, I think that confused people, but I, I mm-hmm. or at least misled people into thinking that it was more of a fairy story and that this is like a fairy land or a different dimension or something like that, mm-hmm. or it, not even anything like that at all, just a pure metaphor for the artistic act. I've seen some interpretations and things like that. Oh. Um, subcreation, <laughs> like Tolkien. There, yes, it is like card. subcreation. Yes, it's exactly what they're getting at without realizing it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a, actually the subcreation thing makes a lot of sense. But it it's because this is, again, it's, it's an Eastern film. And we talked about how there's much more of an economy with um, the spirit world and, and the material world uh, in Eastern ideology uh when we were talking about spirited away that there's more of a commerce and that the bathhouse and spirited away um is being influenced by the material reality into being a more crass and commercialized venture right Mm -hmm. and that there's like more of a two-way street between what's influencing what and what's shaping what and the kami are are actually shaped by humanity right so you you still have that logic at play i don't think that just because the afterlife in the boy and the heron is an eternal place doesn't mean that uh there's not an act of like creation at work mm-hmm. by human figures within that context i.e the the grand uncle in this case like he is a creator of the world and he is shaping that world and, and making let's say that version of eternity right but it doesn't mean well, it's not eternity <laughs> you know this actually yeah so this this does kind of get into and i i don't want to go too far afield because this isn't the point of you know of this story or what you're trying to say but there there is an interesting point to this that um you know, not just Catholic philosophers, but even, or Catholic philosophy, but, but a lot of philosophy does make the distinction between creation and movement where, you know, creation. And again, this is, this was Aquinas's view and historically the the traditional Christian view is that creation wasn't just one moment in time. Creation is continually happening. And so you could say that God is, even though we refer to Genesis as the creation story, it's like, creation is continually being upheld. It's not just the, you know, it's not the, the, the watchmaker winding it up and then letting it go. And then creation is over. Right. It's mm-hmm, that creation mm-hmm. is constantly being upheld. So creation is continually happening at every moment. Sure. And from where is it being upheld? It's being upheld from eternity. Right. And obviously from a Christian standpoint, we'd say that it's God who is in eternity upholding creation. So it's not that God did create. God is continuing to create, even though we're experiencing time moment by moment. We're experiencing movement, right? Or the universe is experiencing movement, right? Yep. You you can even scientifically, that's kind of what the Big Bang is built on is movement. Sure. But creation is distinguished from that, that it's not just a one-time thing. It's it's a continual, right? You could say it's an eternal thing. Well, and and this is a good example of how I think trying to get into the if what the studio ghibli films do really well and that i think are super valuable for anyone to watch is trying to get people out of a western mindset and in this case that kind of means getting back into like a pre-christian pagan mindset like that studio ghibli has but like i said last episode i think that christianity has way more in common with paganism than it does with modernism that modernism Mm -hmm. is this nihilistic dead place and christianity is not dead and it's not in nihilistic. common in the sense that it's much yeah. easier to evangelize pre-christian paganism than it is post-christian modernism well and there's still like there's the same vantage of reality you're operating mm. you're operating from like two sides like you know different sides of the uh battlefield so to speak right but you're on the same page if you will you're on the same battlefield whereas Modernity is this much bigger, darker, and alien reality um, that... So, 
what I would say is that with Studio Ghibli, you you really get a sense that the world is alive, and that we really are eternity. It's porous. That eternity is is shaping the world, and we're shaping eternity. I actually think that we can take some really good lessons from that. The veil is thinner. Yeah, the veil I mean, is thin, and and we would both refer to that as a sacramental view of reality. Yes, right? and, absolutely. And it's the, the image that because um when I teach sacraments to students, the image that I use is the iceberg. And it's not, I didn't make it up. It's a very common image. When people try to teach, not just that this sacrament or that sacrament, but when you just try to teach, like, how do we have a sacramental view in general? And then that makes the acceptance of the power of baptism or the power of the Eucharist more um, palatable is think of an iceberg, right? 90% of the iceberg is under the water. What you can't see doesn't make it less real. It just makes it less visible. And if you looked at all of reality as an iceberg, where there's a lot more that you can't see to it that's informing it, that's shaping it than what you can see, then it's going to give you a much deeper appreciation for the, for the world, for creation, for nature, but also realize that there, it's not in and of itself, it's not everything, there's more to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes well, and you sorry, just need even to... Taking your okay, idea of, sorry, even taking your idea of like, hey, you know, we have this, this idea of time or what we're able to see, our experience, but behind that veil there's a lot bigger world or a lot bigger eternity to it right outside of time. That's the 90% of the iceberg. And we're just experiencing that 10% of this time, like, you know, in the, the character in the story or, or us as individuals. Sorry, I mean, to, um, that's a yeah, perfect. No, I'm actually so glad you said that because we're just experiencing this point in time that comes mm. into play with the way that eternity is represented in the boy and the heron. So what you get, so he, they're in the tower. The old man in the sky is like, hey, take him to find his stepmom. Um, and all of a sudden, all the floor turns into liquid. And he sinks under the waves of the now oceanic floor. Uh, underworld mm-hmm. stuff, you know, all over the yeah. place. And arises, yeah, sure. you know, onto a shore, which is an island. And there's a classic painting called The Isle of the Dead. Um, I think it's from the 19th century. I, I, you know, like someone look it up sometime, but like, it's, uh, it's got big, uh, fir trees or say, so I don't know my trees very well, but like they're, they're coniferous trees. They're really tall. They like the trees that people decorate their, um, fronts of houses with. They're like tall pointed cone like trees. This anyway, cypress trees, cypress trees. There you go. Did you look it up? I did look it up. Yeah. yeah okay. The Isle of I mean, the I'm, Dead. I mean, I'm looking at the, yeah. the image too. Who, who who painted it just for the audience? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, oh, Arnold Bachlin. Arnold Bachlin is how okay. you, I don't know if it's pronounced per- correctly. Bachlin or Bachlin. I better verify that you're looking at the right thing here. <laughs> I mean, it's Isle of the Dead painting. Yeah. That's... Anyway, and it's got the big trees on it and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway... Um, that's what the island looks like. It's taken imagery from that. Uh, I was watching it with a friend though, and he was like, "That also looks like the um, giant um, graves of England, where like you have like Stonehenge-looking monoliths that hmm. ironically also invoke the Shinto. Um, uh, I forget what they're called now, but they are a classic Japanese symbol." They're a Tori gate. That's what they're called, a Tori gate. And it's the Japanese-looking thing where it's like um, the two poles, and then it's got a post going across the top of them. Kind of looks like a pie symbol. Um, hmm. So, wow, that just hit me. That's in the Boy and the Heron, these look like Stonehenge-looking stones, but they're also shaped like Tori gates um, in the Shinto religion. So I'm going to have to noodle on that. But anyway, that's, this that's island is kind the, of a crazy, like just the, all the different like connections between all those things. Cause you will see, you know, people will plant cypress trees in cemeteries. You'll see Tory gates used in like as entryways to cemeteries. So this, I like that it's called the Isle of the dead. I mean, none of this is accidental. That's Western. Well, and Eastern. the movie doesn't call it that, but it's clearly invoking that painting. Because it looks mm-hmm. like it, it looks like that painting, right? Um, and so again, it's like we're in the underworld, folks. We're in the underworld. Mm-hmm. I don't know why no one was like, "Oh, this is a story about a boy going to get his dying stepmother back from the underworld." But that is what this is. <laughs> That's what this this story mm-hmm. is. Um, and uh, so he gets there. He meets a young woman who's fishing sea monsters in the ocean. No symbolism there. Um, mm-hmm. And she's dressed like Kariko. So Kariko 
came into the tower with him, right, as an old woman, and they both fell into the water. But now he is rescued by a young woman um, named Kuriko. And see, we're in eternity now. And mm-hmm. now it's all timey-wimey. And he's going to run into characters that time is is irrelevant. So when you were talking about like how we experience a certain part of eternity in our lives, but that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that eternity is, you know, that we're not experiencing all of eternity. We're only experiencing eternity from our own vantage point, right? Mm-hmm. When you get into the eternal realm of the boy and the heron, that that gets played out, right? So he's rescued by a young Kiriko, um, and she takes care of these Wara Wara spirits, which, uh, so this is Buddhism, Shinto stuff. These are uh, pre-incarnate human souls, uh, mm. and there are pelicans that are eating the souls. So during um, the Spirited Away thing, we talked about how there's the implication of the souls eating the dead, the kami eating the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the Gospels, uh, Jesus talks about the birds coming down and you know eating the seeds on the path. You know, uh, yeah. Well, and, uh, and you know, you mentioned C.S. Lewis and the the Narnia kind of um, setup, but that's definitely uh, Screw Tape proposes a toast too, right? Where they're eating the souls of the uh, the damned in hell. Yeah, absolutely. So you have this idea that these this these human potentials or these souls trying to incarnate into life are being nipped in the bud, if you will. Um, by these pelicans. Now, because it's an Eastern movie, there really is no truly good or evil. Um, it's revealed that these pelicans are just trying to survive, right? And the only thing they can eat are the souls, right? Mm. So that's, again, that's going to be the kind of an Eastern, like, um, yin-yang type motif. Nevertheless, though, they are very demonic creatures. And eventually we're going to meet an empire of parakeets that are also constantly hungry and trying to eat the humans, um and uh they're also bird creatures and so if you go into uh the history of paganism and spirituality and ancient belief patterns you know the reason why you put wings on angels even in iconography is because Mm -hmm. birds are spiritual creatures um and so the fact that uh there's so many birds at play in the boy and the heron including the heron right Mm -hmm. it's because birds are spirit creatures they live in the air the air is where the spirits live you know they're sky they're sky creatures a lot of it obviously implies a lot of movement right or fast movement which people think of or associate with angelic or spiritual um but also just the they are uh moved by the wind right and how that can be you know what does jesus say about like the wind will blow where it will and so it's unpredictable so that unpredictability uh, because we can't, in a sense, control or rein in angels or spiritual beings. Um, they, you know, they move too quick for us, so to speak. And so, birds is kind of a good, or, or wings at least, is a good symbol or image. Well, and it's really, it's really practical within the pagan, you know, history. Let's say this is where augury comes from. Um, this is where studying the you know so like they would actually pay people to study the birds uh in order to like find like fortune tellers you know like using birds as a means of uh, divination um Mm. uh you know it's because they really thought you know the romans used an eagle as their symbol because that was uh the eagle was jove right it was zeus but you know it's the most powerful bird in the sky kind of thing right so this is this is global um mm. uh anyway uh he uh is also protect like when he's recovering from being in the ocean um she puts a bunch of little dolls all around him that look like the nannies from his estate in the material world and so mm. it was almost like this inversion of iconography it's like here, okay. she's like, these will protect you. And it's like the prayers of the nannies in the real world are protecting him in the afterlife, right? Just when you thought the uh, Orthodox couldn't beat the paganism charge, they get <laughs> roped right back in. Right? It's like, hey, this isn't helping. Yeah. No, well, it's just funny because it's it's definitely an inversion, however, right? You know, mm. with the prayers yeah, of sure. the... Um, the people in the afterlife are, are helping us, but still it's an interesting to see a different culture depict that uh, highway between the material world and the spirit world. Right. in such a um, visual way. And anyway, they're little statues. So if anything, they're more mm. Catholic than orthodox. Yeah, nice. so, <laughs> All right. I'll take it. <laughs> um, 
and uh, she but goes you can say and dolls. They, <laughs> well, yeah. um, so she goes and gets the heron and the boy to make amends long enough for the heron to go take him to a stepmom. Um, oh yeah. Also, he sees another lady who is like a fire elemental lady who is also protecting the Warra Warra from the pelicans. And um, let's see here. In the movie, she is called... What did they call her? I wrote this down. It's like Mimi or something like that. But uh, I don't know. If you can find that... Oh, yeah, it is Mimi. Good. Um, And uh, she's like, go uh, Pelican or Heron, go take him to see his stepmom. And they take off looking for his stepmom. And... uh, they get ambushed by the parakeet who they're all imperial they look like basically i'm pretty sure it's invoking world war ii era japan imperialism mm. so most of this movie is about making a world without malice and like growing into someone who's going to bring peace to the world and not war to the world because it's mm. it's taking place in the context of world war ii right yeah. um and so they look like the spirit of imperialism, you know, they, they represent that. Um, and so they're like this military order of parakeets. Um, they try to eat Mojito. The heron gets driven off by them and he's saved by this fire lady named Mimi. And, uh, he's like, I'm looking for Natsuko. Uh, she's my mother. He's just calling her his mother. Right. Um, which is both a, you know, sign of respect, but also textually, I think like a sense of him growing up, and being like, you know, I can accept her. But uh, Mimi's like, oh, that's my sister. Okay. And so it's like, okay, so you're telling me that this little girl, like she's young. She's like Mahito's age. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, whatever, like 14 maybe. Um, and like he, when she saves him, she takes him to her house and like makes him bread with like jam. And he's like, oh man, this is just like my mom used to make. Right. Uh, <laughs> and so yeah. so he meets a girl who is the sister of Natsuko who makes bread and jam just like his mom used to make. Um, it's like, OK, <laughs> so he meets his mom in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, and so exactly the rest of what the heron promised, you know, it's exactly what the heron it is. Actually, well, Made ultimately, good. the heron was trying to take him to his stepmom. But like, that is kind of an interesting point. Um, anyway, no, so sorry. anyway, no. Yeah. The he has a dream um, where he meets his granduncle, the old man in the sky. And he's like, I created this world. Here are these building blocks. I need someone to replace me and become the new person who helps build the world. Right. I've never been able to do it just, just right. I have to find someone who can do it just right. And the kid's like, Oh, you have malice in these building blocks. And uh, the granduncle's like, Oh yeah, you're right. Kind of thing. And then he like wakes up from the dream. Um, Mimi gets captured by the parakeets. The heron, sh- so does uh, Mahito, the boy. Um, the heron shows up and rescues Mahito. They go after to try to find Mimi, who has been brought to the granduncle because the parakeet empire people want to use her as leverage because she is the ancestor. She's the niece of the granduncle. She's like, hey, mm-hmm. we will exchange your niece back to you um, in exchange for control of the blocks so that we can have control of reality. Oh, and I forgot one other important thing. Mimi does bring him and finds Natsuko. She's in like a tomb-like environment and Mm -hmm. uh, she is giving birth, right? Um, And she's got all these burial burial shrouds. Looks like burial shrouds all around her. Um, Those shrouds attack Mihito because he's a living person in the land of the dead. And, uh, you know, she's at this tomb giving birth because birth is how she's being killed and things like that. Um, and she's like, get out of here. I don't love you. I never loved you kind of thing. It's kind of like an old yeller type thing. <laughs> like, you're not okay. supposed to be here. Get out of here kind of stuff. She's well, trying to, to drive him, him off. Yeah, to save, yeah him. to save him kind of stuff. Um, and that's Mimi uses her fire powers to, like, kill all the, like, evil burial shouts. It's very reminiscent of, like, the paper birds who attack Haku and Spirited Away. Mm. Um but that's when they pass out and that's when they get captured by the parakeets and things like that. So I forgot that important part of the story. Um, the heron and Mahito finds uh, the granduncle. Uh, Mimi is there with the granduncle and the parakeets are trying to make the exchange. And 
the granduncle's like, hey, I made new building blocks and they don't have malice in them anymore. And Mahito's like, yeah, but I have malice in me. And he points at the scar on his head, right? And so he's like, see, the mm-hmm. problem isn't with the world. The problem is inside me. See, that's it's why this is you. a this is an original sin story. This is a you know the heron is the serpent. <laughs> it is the, the line between yeah. good and evil goes to the heart of every man to use or a, is across every person's forehead. Is yeah, the, or across every person's forehead, right? Um, the parakeets lose their temper. They try to take the blocks by force, and it results in a cosmic flood, and the whole world falls apart. Like the my gosh, the, we're the just whole... r- racing through the book of Genesis. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, dude. It's crazy how this plays out. Um, the grand it's just another way to show how ubiquitous these stories. Like again, you you can't avoid these just human, you know, stories that we happen to, you know, grace has built upon this nature when it comes to all these different elements. But that, that's just a quick aside. Sorry to interrupt. No, sure. Um, the, uh, I never, <laughs> uh, how much time do we got left? I've lost track. Do we have um, like 12 I need minutes? Fix, 12 minutes. All right, I can wrap this up. We're really close to the end of the story, actually. So it gives me time to t- explain that um, there's this cosmic rock, right? So this rock fell from the sky. There's backstory that was given where um, the granduncle, who's a guy from real life, you know, from the material world, really is their ancestor. Um, This cosmic stone landed on his property and it gave him access to basically the afterlife, right? But like, you know, I don't think audience picked up on that. Instead, they think that it's like he, in the way that he talks about in the story is like, I use the power of this stone to create this world, right? The the version of the afterlife that they're inhabiting. The foundation stone, this is like, Again, this is like too well, and it, and it comes it's from the so sky, weird. right? It, yeah, it, it's, no, that's it's, like it's the prophecy stone. in Daniel. The prophecy yeah. in Daniel. I mean, that's yeah. he builds the tower on top of the stone, so the tower is basically like a church steeple. You know, becomes from a from a Western perspective, it is this mm-hmm. liminal place. Um, it was made with divine power, right? The line he puts above the gate no, of this, it. This is the Daniel prophecy. I mean, and it's, it's, and it's a place, one of the things that I glossed over was that it's got doors to, uh, to all areas of reality. So again, we're in eternity, right? So this, it kind of is invocative of like Loki where like they Mm -hmm. can travel to any point in time and space, um, Mm -hmm. or Dr. Who, right? Mm -hmm. The tower is kind of like a TARDIS. (laughs) Um, but, uh, and so, and it's even revealed that like his Mimi, his mother as a girl, it, this is actually her. Like she actually did come to the tower as a little girl um, before it became a forbidden place and was lost for like a year. And mm. it, it turns out that in a timey wimey way, she goes into the tower. She's gone for a year in the material world back in like 19, whatever, 20 or something like that. Um, but it turns out that she's had this adventure with her eventual son. Um, and, uh, so they have, they're fleeing from the destruction of the reality that the granduncle created using the cosmic stone powers. Um, and, uh, Mahito grabs, keeps one of the building blocks and puts it in his pocket uh, along with, he has one of the little voodoo dolls, if you will, one of the dolls, the, hmm. um, little idols of the nannies in his pocket too. Momentum. Uh, yeah. And... <laughs> So they flee and they get to the doors um, back to reality. And, um, and this is a very touching moment. Mahito's like, you got to come with me. You can't go back. You're going to die. Right? Because, like, she dies. She dies in a horrible flaming death, you know? Um, mm. And she's like, oh, no, I'm okay. I just, I know that when I go back, I'm going to have a wonderful son. And I'm going to have a wonderful life. So um, if if you've seen the movie Arrival, <laughs> it's kind of yeah. invokes some of that stuff no, like that. We ought to do an Arrival episode, so I don't want to like spoil too much about that we, movie. But that's like, gonna be our yeah our pro life episode. Yeah. <laughs> um. And so you know they hug and and say goodbye, and I got a little choked up thinking about that moment because it's well, a really you beautiful know you, moment. you are emotional. You just have I am baby, a so softy. Okay. I'm a big softy. Um. Yeah, but because circumstances too. Congratulations. This is our first recording since. Yeah, you know, we missed a week. We're probably going to go to an every other week. I was going to say at the end of this episode because I keep forgetting to mention it, but I have a new baby girl. So thanks, Mike. Yeah. Pretty soon you'll be here with me. That's, I forget. Well, you, we'll see. We'll see if it's, we don't know if it's a boy or girl, but yeah, new baby is sure. coming very soon. 
probably yep. so we're we're gonna have to we're gonna be busy <laughs> folks but anyway um and one slow of the things that i think really slow cool yeah uh is that she's a fire elemental type lady and it's like obviously it's because like uh from the vantage point of eternity you know she has this relationship with the fire and it's it's the result of her death but it well, gives her powers in the afterlife well and there again that are used like, for good we we sort of we kind of have a roundabout way of acknowledging our saints by that right i mean Every, Absolutely. You know, every icon of our saint, every statue of our saint usually has the instrument of their death or their martyrdom along with them, right? So yep. you'll have That's Saint exactly Paul what I'm talking sword, about. Right? Or St. Peter with the with the cross or, or St. Who's Andrew the one you like to point out? The, the patron saint of grillers? <clears throat> oh, St. Lawrence? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, St. Lawrence. He got grilled. <laughs> to well, death. There was also, oh gosh, now I'm going to forget the name. Was it, was it Simon the Zealot, the apostle who is depicted at St. Peter's um, holding his own skin because he was skinned alive. So the it, statue is him, but it's also him holding his skin or, or yeah, it's, it's either mm-hmm. his statue or it's the Michel, the Michelangelo, um, the painting, something. Here's it's a fun one of one. those two. When uh, we were still debating what to call our daughter um, and it looked like she was going to be born around St. Agatha's day. So St. Agatha is uh, a lady that had her boobs torn off <laughs> with mm. tongs. And so now to this day, there are places in like Italy and things like that that make boob-shaped pastries <laughs> that Jeez. are called St. Agatha, Saint Agatha's pastries or something like That's that. That's like the baptizing of the bachelorette party cake is what that is. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, and so it's like, I don't know. I it's don't making know. holy the crass, yeah. Yeah, um, but anyway, you know, to bring this into a more profound area once more. You didn't want her to dress as herself <laughs> for All Saints Day. That's why you tried to do it. It was a pretty complicated uh, saint for uh, a modern woman. Um, but uh, the, uh, the idea, and you get this in like C.S. Lewis too, there's that beautiful moment in The Great Divorce where the person has a little like serpent dragon on his shoulder that gets crushed mm-hmm. by the angel. And suddenly that serpent dragon thing turns into a giant like steed, steed, a horse. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's able to travel faster towards God because of the, you know, in our weakness, we're made strong idea. You know, and the mm-hmm. things that we think are hurting us are the things that actually help us in eternity. And yeah, it, it becomes this sort of inversion because the destructiveness of sin is that we do identify with the sin, that it becomes so much a part of us that we think I can't let go of it because it's who I am. And there is, again, a seed of truth to that, that it is a part of who you are, but the sin part of it isn't. The sin is the distortion, the part that's who you are, because a lot of people look into that story in The Great Divorce where the lizard is is lust. But what was the real virtue? The steed was the uh, chastity. And that can actually be the means, right? The, the authentic love that we can realize through chastity becomes a means or the virtue becomes a means by which we run to God faster. It still is a part of us. In a sense, the, the lizard was still a part of him. It just wasn't ever supposed to be a lizard in the first place. Mm. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, like all of our, you know, all of our sins, I would grant to somebody, yeah, it is a part of you. But the sin part of it isn't. That's the distortion. Yeah. The virtue is the part that God made you with, right? Or that God has put into your soul. Um, so it's a really it becomes this really beautiful symbol within the movie. The fact that she has this connection with fire, uh, and eternity, and and how that plays out. And so anyway, uh, they say goodbye. Uh, you know, they had grabbed Natsuko on their way out, <laughs> basically, and so. Uh, he returns to the material reality with his stepmom. Uh, she does not die in childbirth. She gives birth. Um, they're reunited with his dad. Um, the little doll of Kiriko that was in his pocket like turns into an old lady. Like she like mm. explodes out of his pocket, <laughs> like back as the old lady again. Mm. So so there's some relationship between her and the the idol, you know, which again, mm-hmm. from an Orthodox, uh, you know, even a Catholic kind of iconography, the, um, you know, it's, there's definitely elements there. Um, and so, and that's the end of the story is they live happily yeah. ever after. He accepts Natsuko as his new mother and becomes a big brother. And, uh, you <clears throat> and know, the connection they return between to... boy in the heron and spirited away is 
there's there's a similar thing going on, but one you can see is sort of like a um there's definitely a depth to Boy and the Heron compared to Spirited Away. Spirited Away is about growing up and about the change and the the letting go that has to go there. Whereas here, there's a much deeper healing that has to take place, right? The healing of loss um, of this new life that this new family and this found family is kind of bringing into the situation. And so there's a lot more to let go of than just the fact that, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. Even mm-hmm. though that's definitely part yeah. of Boy and the Heron too. It is. It's a much more dramatic. It's a much again. So like, Spirit of the Way is is basically a fairy tale, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Boy and the Heron is a much more um, metaphysical story, right? And and yet they have so much. They have such a similar shape to each other because you know our concepts of fairy and our concepts of the afterlife are really just two sides of the same coin. You know, um, it's it's still interesting to read people's interpretations or, or listen to some YouTube video interpreters interpretations of this movie. Mm. Um, I just, I haven't heard a lot of like super obvious commentary similar to my own on this. And I think that most people are going to say that's the beauty of studio Ghibli is that like, there's so open to interpretation, which yep, I agree. Like, and there's nothing wrong. In fact, I've heard some really, really interesting meta commentaries on the fact that like, subtextually this is a movie about miyazaki wanting to find a successor so like mm. he's the grand uncle but he's also mojito and so he he wants to find you know someone to replace him kind of thing and yeah uh, so there's lots of really interesting there's 13 blocks um and basically if you include some of the earliest work that miyazaki did he's made 13 acts of creation across mm. his lifetime so, oh geez, people are going to get all uh, Taylor Swift about the symbolism and the numerology <laughs> with this guy too. I wish I could remember the YouTuber that I uh, gleaned that off of. I would totally give him credit for pointing that out. It was a really interesting video. Nah, I just um, steal credit. It's fine. Yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> Being faithful to YouTuber. the tradition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Death of the author. You know, no, who cares? You got to mention, mention the name so that we can get associated with it and. Get- <laughs> yeah exactly that's what we should do um th- go watch these films folks um and then if you're really interested go check out a lot of the other studio ghibli stuff but like uh the boy and the heron really is there's debate whether or not Miyazaki's going to do another film frankly he'll kind of ruin the symbolism if he does <laughs> so, oh, man. So, so don't do it Miyazaki you, you have your perfect yeah. coda your Be perfect content. magnum opus uh you know don't ruin it by overextending your your welcome don't go for the cash <laughs> grab right make a sequel just keep making sequels now that's, that's yeah what exactly right to, um, uh, what my other neighbor not Totoro, but the other neighbor just keep doing yeah <laughs> the other neighbor yeah. <laughs> yeah um anyway yeah i appreciate uh you letting me spill my guts on this flick uh i really Indulging it's you unfortunate you couldn't get a chance a to see it I know, right? Oh, I'm sure I will at some point. It'll be on Max at some point. Yeah. yeah no, I, I do look forward to it. And I mean, it's one of those ones that actually all the Studio Ghibli ones, it's like you just, you keep hearing so many good things and it's like you, you I'm looking for something different in terms of, hey, it's not going to be as much as I like, you know, whether it's comic book movies or, or something like that. It's like something that is just so unique and so different and really is thought provoking. And that's one of the things that you see, like when people can take the um you know the fairy tale concept so seriously and bring all of these you know cool and interesting ideas um it really just does i mean it helped it it's why people can call it an art form it's why it's not mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be relegated or or you know put aside as oh well that's just entertainment um it's so much more than that so no this is just another good good example of why that's the case so let's just remind the audience that we're probably going to be on a every two week um, episode drop. Right. So now you don't I have mean, to listen to our episodes in double speed. You just put them on regular speed, and it'll take a little <laughs> bit longer to go through them. You can really in, um, digest them and uh-huh. uh, appreciate them for for you know the value that they bring. And yeah, I mean that's that'll probably be our our regular kind of production schedule. Um, at least I don't know in the near future, and we'll just kind of mm-hmm. we can we can we'll see how it goes. Be free with it, and yeah, see what happens. Yeah, if there's Certainly a good no reason to drop that, right, a bonus Jacob? one in between weeks, then I'm sure we'll do so. I'm sure there'll uh, be a good Last of Us episode at some point, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, maybe for Rings of Power. Maybe we'll finally, finally get a we good one. 
we didn't hey you like the season uh no if anything yeah we'll have to do it for when rings of power finally comes because we haven't done any rings of power yet. we have we've, done no rings we've, of power we've had, yeah we've super we've, uh, funny we've, we've been very um disciplined in our mm-hmm. anyway especially yeah, no. for a podcast it's just you know tolkien all the way down i mean i'm shocked <laughs> oh, god we're not gonna let that go. Maybe at some point, <laughs> at some point we'll have to. That's gonna be the healing. That's gonna be our boy in the hair and our healing. Yeah, is from, exactly, exactly. So, but which is a good reminder to leave those uh, positive reviews and five star ratings to get this uh, this show and other episodes like it out there because um, we we do obviously enjoy having these conversations and and kind of just investigating and looking for these these deeper themes that we can find in all this different stuff. So, yeah. Until next time, looking forward yep. to uh, talking with you soon, Jacob. Thanks, Mike. I will. I hear. I hear her crying. Have a great fast. Have a great fast. Oh, we're actually not even going to do that for like another like month and a half. So we're going to start. Orthodox, you're going to start Lent right as you guys are finishing up Easter. So um, or something to that effect. I'd have to look at the calendar again. I was going to say we got about six weeks for ours. So Uh, no, I mean like. I'm not I'm not in Lent. I'm not gonna be in Lent for a month and a half. And then there'll be forty days of Lent and then there'll be Pascha. That's, that's so crazy that it's so yeah. different this time. This it's yeah, it's it's different. about as wide of a difference as you can get um between the East and the Western calendars. Uh oh, really? so oh. you know, well it's about. because we're doing it the right way and you guys have this weird All right, I'm pressing new fangled no. new fangled <laughs> Gregorian calendar. <laughs> I'm innovators. <laughs> Have a good have a good couple of weeks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Voyage Podcast. The Voyage Podcast is a production of Voyage Comics and Publishing, which seeks to create exceptional entertainment informed by Catholic values that inspire people to live a heroic life. Voyage Comics seeks to advance truth and beauty found in powerful stories. To learn more, visit voyagecomics.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 